Sam Sanders here. This week on my show, I interview actress Natasha Rothwell, also known as Kelly from HBO's Insecure. We talk about that role and how she got a writing job on SNL through a secret black woman-only audition. Download it now. It's been a minute from NPR. A heads up, the following podcast contains language that some people may find offensive. You're listening to Code Switch. I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji. And I'm Gene Demby. And if you follow any celebrity on Instagram, you already know award season is here. The dresses, the parties, the selfies with the famous people, all that. But the Oscars aren't till February. So far away, which is plenty of time for people to start picking favorites for all the big trophies. And then time for there to be backlashes to the favorites. And then backlashes to those backlashes to the favorites. <laughs> Speaking of the Oscars, Shireen, didn't you get invited to the Oscars last year? I sure did. Were you nominated for something? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet, but that is in the plan for okay. the future. Um, no, I was supposed to help some NPR colleagues cover the ceremony so it wasn't, you know, sexy like taking shots with Guillermo del Toro or Benicio del Toro for that matter, <laughs> who I love. Anyway, I, I got really sick. I couldn't go. It's a sad story. My dress is still hanging up in the closet collecting dust. It's supposed to be an opportunity for you to flex, but I guess this is not really an opportunity. I'm flexing right here in the studio. <coughs> Can you see my guns? <laughs> uh, maybe you get to dust off your dress this year. I hope so. Like we said, the Academy Awards are in five months, but film critics have already seen a lot of the movies that will probably end up being nominated. One of the places they converge is north of the border at the Toronto International Film Festival, which recently wrapped. It's where the so-called critical consensus begins to cohere. Mm. But the people who decided what's buzzworthy in Toronto, and for the film industry in general, the critics, those people are mostly white. Surprise! Surprise! And joining us to talk more about that is Bilal Qureshi. He covers film for NPR. He's not white, (laughs) and he's been thinking a lot about race and film criticism over the years. Bilal, welcome back to Code Switch. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, we're friends. That's I talk right. On the phone Just with you disclosure, all the time. disclosure, yes. <laughs> and I've been listening to you talk about going to Toronto for, it feels like years now. Um, tell the audience who's never, probably never been like me, what's so great about the Toronto Film Festival? Why is it so important? Well, you know, as Gene was just saying, the fall film season, the sort of prestige season when Hollywood has its serious movies that are sort of designed to be seen in blazers and scarves come out. (laughs) That's sort of, this is that time of year. And the Toronto Film Festival is the biggest of these three big festivals, Venice, Telluride, and Toronto. Uh And um, you wear a blazer and scarf when you watch these movies. Exactly. Well, it's usually cold, but this year was kind of hot. So thanks, climate change. But the (laughs) the broader point is that this is when these movies that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the year are first shown. And Toronto has just become so much bigger because it's close to New York, it's close to LA, mm. it's in it's the North American premieres for a lot of the big films of the year. You have huge events, all the celebrities are there, all the directors are there. Um, and and yeah, as, as you were saying, Gene, it's where you get to see a lot of these films for the first time and critics and get to sort of sit around and talk about, well, this is great, this is what's going to win Best Picture, this is what's going to have the, the Best Actor nominees. All that consensus sort of begins to form at this festival. Okay, so how does this work? Like, after the screenings, are y'all sitting around, like, having conversations about, you know, the latest Baron Jenkins movie? Like, are you just sitting around drinking coffee and, and just, like, gaming out what might happen in the next couple of months? Uh, Barry Jenkins name-dropping always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, you'd think that might be it. There's a lot of binge viewing going on. You're usually in three to five films a day. Um, and you're running from screening to screening and occasionally trying to catch a press conference or somebody talking about a film. Mm. So it's not as sort of, you know, why? 
wine and, and sort of cheese after movie, as you might have thought. But I think what ends up happening is that you see very quickly people tweet right out of the screenings about what they think the best thing was of the year or mm-hmm. the big dailies like Variety and Hollywood Reporter, which are the big Hollywood, you know, sort of uh, journals. They'll have the, their reviews up right away. And you begin to see very quickly too marketing begin to take shape. You know, those mm-hmm. blurbs that you see, most amazing film ever, <laughs> best performance I've ever seen, crying in my seat. Riveting. Like riveting, like all that kind of hyperbolic adjective mm-hmm. language that all begins to sort of materialize. Viola Davis is a force. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In, in that voice, exactly. Um, <laughs> and I think it happens right there at the festival. You see it happen so quickly because people want to be first in. They want to break the news, as it were, about a certain film. That sounds anxiety-producing to right. me. Do you plan out everything you're going to do and advance your agenda? Well, you know, for a long time, I, when I started going to Toronto, part of it was I, it's also a, an amazing festival to see a lot of small films, independent films, international films. For a long time, the so-called diverse films were diverse not really films. in the main program. You know, they would mm-hmm. often be mm-hmm. on the sidelines or they'd be playing in smaller theaters. And so for me, that was often less anxiety producing because I wasn't interested in catching, you know, the, the next sort of Bradley Cooper Silver Linings playbook screening before everybody else could get to it. So it made it <laughs> less anxiety inducing to me but I will say that yeah it's delirium central there's like so many movies going on and you have FOMO all day about did you miss something (laughs) (laughs) could you have done this could you have seen this differently is the popcorn good at least yeah it's really good Toronto is I mean the Canadians have really good snacks and uh, (laughs) and (laughs) there are lots of good you know you have to have cash with you at all times so it's it's fun it's like poutine popcorn yeah Yeah, there's a lot of poutine all day poutine all day long right so in an essay you wrote for us on Code Switch on the Code Switch blog mm-hmm. that's called Widening the Lens, you wrote that in the past, when you've gone to these screenings, you've been one of, if not the only, brown face in the room. Yeah, I mean, in 2012, that was my first time at the Toronto Film Festival. I mean, the film critics were kind of elite. The festival screenings were also people were often like on their Blackberries or iPhones, like sending notes right away to their editors. There's a very particular vibe in the movie theater that you may not be accustomed to usually. And and concurrent to these press screenings that are happening are all the public screenings of the films. Huh. And Toronto itself is a very diverse city. So you look out in the city, it's very, you know, brown, Asian, uh, mixed race. It's it's very much the sort of Toronto demographic. But the screenings where these critics were gathered and where I would often be sitting at some of these screenings, you'd see like it was almost entirely white at most of these uh, screenings and also much older and kind of very seasoned uh, crowd that has had that has their game on sort of criticism and their Mm -hmm. blurbs down BQ let's talk numbers okay Uh, so not just my feelings you mean (laughs) (laughs) yes give us some data okay what do the numbers look like in terms of uh, critics yeah, this summer, the USC, uh, the University of Southern California out in L.A. where you are, Shereen, has uh, has just released actual numbers for the first time on film criticism and what it looks like. And they huh. surveyed films over the last few years, looking at the top 300 films that are released and their Rotten Tomatoes scores, and basically looking at what feeds into those, those aggregated scores that films get. Okay. And they found that basically... Uh, 80% of film critics were uh, male and the, the vast majority were, were white and mm-hmm. you had a very small percentage that were written, of reviews that were written by women of color, mm-hmm. 4%. Um, wow. And so the numbers of people who are actually weighing in on the films whose, whose consensus is even being taken into account in those aggregated scores 
is really not representative at all of the country. And this was the first time that you had hard numbers to show that. I spoke to one film critic, Monica Castillo, who said that when she first read those numbers, she's a Latina film, American film critic. She's really had a hard time herself getting some of her reviews out, she told me. She said, you know, for the first time I had a number to my experience. And another thing that came out actually in an updated version of the study, which was released during Toronto this year, is that there's also a discrepancy between how critics um, rate and, and review films based on who the central character is. They found that when critics review movies with white male characters at their center, they tend to rank them similarly okay. across backgrounds. But when you begin to see a difference that, say, a movie has a woman of color at its center, then the white male critics don't tend to rank it as highly. So what what they were finding was that there was actually a discrepancy between how those movies are then received and that there, in fact, is a connection between how you relate to a story and perhaps even review it. Um, which is not to say, of course, that every black critic likes every black film, mm-hmm. but to say that there is a discrepancy that they're finding in the numbers that were given to films. So, Bilal, you write that mainstream criticism itself is at risk of becoming irrelevant if it doesn't address this issue, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that I was mentioning that this issue is even more important now is that movies, in fact, have become are, are much further along than the critics are. And that's the biggest thing that I've been noticing at Toronto. And, and while I experienced that some of these theaters would be, you know, as white as the Canadian winter, you know, the, the, <laughs> the problem was that the films themselves are becoming more and more multicultural, multiracial. The big stars of the last few festivals have been Steve McQueen, Barry Jenkins, you know, Ava DuVernay's films have shown at Toronto. You have a kind of sense that the actual culture that's being made now is moving much further along. You know, if you look at last year alone, you had huge hits. Uh, Girls Trip, Coco, um, Black Panther, of course, and Crazy Rich Asians now, which each then lead to some kind of discussion like, well, actually, people of color go to the movies. Why don't we have more movies? Every time time it comes Mm -hmm. out, it's like, wow, we didn't know they were all there. But I am doing, I just have to break in here. I'm doing a story about La Bamba, and I've been reading all these articles from, you know, I think it's 30 years ago, and they were saying the exact same thing. Because, you know, La Bamba had come out, Stand and Deliver, and it was like, oh, Latinos go to the movies, and Latinos are on screen in Hollywood, maybe this is going to be a renaissance. And here we are having the same conversation 30 years later. But I think the kind of back-to-back successes of these films, the fact that, you know, the industry itself is changing and a new generation of artists and filmmakers are becoming much more the stars of these film festivals, to not have criticism, you know, accompanying that shift is becoming more and more of a problem. And so Toronto this year actually did something really different, which is that they invited almost 200 journalists of color and underrepresented backgrounds to the festival, paid for them to come there Hmm. and accredited them and gave them a chance to have access to these screenings and these interviews. I mean, the reason I've been really enjoying going there for many years and have have written so much from the festival is because it's actually curated by this really, I think, progressive, interesting um, film curator, Cameron Bailey, who's the artistic director of the festival. He's black, he's Canadian, his uh, wife is Chinese-Canadian. He's very much talked about sort of how an inclusive festival and an inclusive industry is central to kind of his mission for the festival. He's also a former film critic himself. Mm-hmm. And and so he's been really a big part of bringing these big films like Steve McQueen's 12 Years a Slave or Barry Jenkins' Moonlight into the festival program as big red carpet events. So, you know, there's tiers of screenings and these have been given the big full kind of treatment in the last few years. And Cameron Bailey, you know, I, I spoke to him uh, this year about this initiative and why they wanted to do this. So I wanted to play you guys a little bit of what he had to say. The reactions that came out of Film Fest 
festivals was often different and was challenged sometimes on social media when the films went into general release. Films especially where there was some kind of specific racial threat in the narrative or in, in some many cases a gender threat in the narrative. Uh, and you began to get different reactions from uh, at least my social media feed and many people's others, I think, uh, than you would from the critical reaction. And so we began to pay attention to that. And as soon as we began to have those debates internally at TIFF, I was thrown back to my own experience. I was a film critic for many, many years, beginning in the late 1980s. And in Toronto, I was nearly always the only person in a room full of critics watching a film at a press screening who wasn't white. So I was very aware on a personal level of what that felt like and sometimes having different opinions than the consensus opinion around films and how uh, bringing a wider range of people to the table would generate a wider range of opinions. Did you notice, Bilal, if this initiative made a difference at the film festival this year? Well, you know, I think a lot of the articles that people are going to be writing and essays will come out as some of these films are released. So they're being shown pre-release at the festival. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely the screenings to me felt you know they were more diverse than they had been before. I also think that some of the, the big films that came out at this year's festival, you saw reactions to them in on Twitter and such that immediately took into account that they were engaging with questions of race, identity, what's happening politically in America. They're not sort of context free, mm-hmm. which I think is really nice to begin to see that that films are being viewed, you know, in in the prism of what we're going through right now as a, as a country and as a society. So I think that's something where critics of color were really weighing in when they saw in a movie that it, it was speaking to our time. And one of the big movies of the festival this year was Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, um, who I know is a, 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 a favorite of Gene's, right? <laughs> yeah, Moonlight. Oh, God. I, he was on the podcast. Yeah, that's right. Moonlight, yeah. When he wrote Moonlight, he also wrote an adaptation of James Baldwin's uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. And that film premiered, had its world premiere at Toronto. We are drinking to new life. Tish gonna have Fanny's baby. I can say that that movie, you know, being in the audience there and the reactions to that movie, the standing ovation that it received, just the feeling in that room was really different and palpable. The debate that that movie generated um, was very much emblematic of the of this this shift at Toronto, where you had you know more critics of color weighing in, saying that they they saw in that movie, uh, you know, things that I think maybe the white critics weren't seeing. Um, and and to that point, actually, Cameron Bailey talked about programming this film at the festival, and I wanted to play you a bit of what he said. It springs from the 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 cultural production of Black America in terms of the the Baldwin source material, Barry's work as a writer and a filmmaker, the actors who are there, and there's some you know, details, some texture, some nuance that I think a black audience is going to respond to in a stronger way, and black critics will as well. And so it was really refreshing to see the debate. And it doesn't mean people are going to like it anymore, but there's just going to be a kind of a, a depth of insight that you will get from people who are also already immersed in that culture. It's funny listening to Cameron there because so much of movie viewing in a theater is a very communal experience, right? When Girls Trip came out, I was I was very I like wanted to see that with black folks. I wanted to hear black people react to it. I wanted to hear it. like there's this humor that plays differently in a room full of black folks, and that is when humor is aimed at black people, right? Um, I so, felt yeah. the same way about Coco, by the way. 
And I did see it in a theater full of Latinos, Latinx folks. Mm-hmm. Well, and with if, if Beale Street, what, what Cameron Bailey was suggesting was when that movie screened at Toronto at the world premiere, it was a public screening. People were had a rapturous kind of reception. And mm-hmm. and some wrote, people wrote, you know, it was one of the most beautiful portrayals of black love that has ever been put to screen. And, Cam, you know, as you know, if you're a, a super fan of Barry Jenkins, I mean, he makes movies About, that, yeah. that just, like, <laughs> light up the screen in a way that nobody else really does. And, and then some critics, of course, the next day who were seeing it in the press screenings were critiquing the film for not being as great as Moonlight was, for for seeming slow and dragging at times. So they became kind of structural responses to it that were different. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there was a kind of divide that that movie had. Um, But Barry Jenkins himself gave an interview after the film and said, you know, I made this for black people. And this is a movie that's about sort of black life and black love. And and to him, he understands that, that those audiences will react to it differently. I think what's great about this year is a lot of black critics were there too, to be able to write their reviews and who will probably be writing a lot of the think pieces that you'll read about this film um, once it comes out later this fall. More on Movies and Race with Bilal Qureshi after the break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Partnership for a New American Economy Research Fund, reminding you that Citizenship Day was on September 17th. Details on the top 100 cities for new Americans are at naecitiesindex.org NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Capital One. When designer Bev Yang and her team were creating new features for the CreditWise app, they started by researching how people interact with their credit reports. We realized that most people only wanted to know what's changed. So we'll send you an alert anytime we see that anything meaningful changes on your TransUnion or Experian credit report. CreditWise sends credit alerts from two credit bureaus for free, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now. Jean. Shireen. Code Switch. And we're back here with Bilal Qureshi. Tell us about some other movies that are getting a lot of buzz. Well, you know, the movie that won the equivalent of the prize that Three Billboards won last year is a movie called Green Book. I'm a musician. I'm about to embark on a concert tour in the Deep South. What other experience do you have? Public relations. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? You and the Deep South, there's going to be problems. Which is directed by uh, Peter Farrelly, who made, who's one of the Farrelly brothers who made Dumb and Dumber and uh, There's Something About Mary. But this is his kind of serious turn, and it's a movie about Wait, a. Wait, Green Book, like the books that black people needed to use to navigate through segregated spaces. When yeah, exactly. This is a period film set in the 1960s before the Civil Rights Act is passed, and um, Mahershala Ali Moonlight. The Great. The Great is playing. From a, the Bay. Yeah, playing a <laughs> jazz musician who has to go on a tour through the Deep South and his sort of white uh, driver is played by Viggo Mortensen and the two of them have to navigate these spaces, learn to deal with each other and it's really supposed to be the race sort of feel-good movie of the year um, because they come to terms with each other and learn about each other and about America in the interim. I didn't see it because it screened later but people who saw it at Toronto really loved it and the Canadian audiences really loved it. Now, I I have a sinking feeling that this movie is going to generate a lot of backlash when it comes out or, or just a lot of debate. 
a few mm. people have tweeted at us about this movie. A few people that were at Toronto said that, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. It sounds like reverse driving Miss Davies from what you just <laughs> driving described. Driving Mr. Ali. <laughs> driving Mr. Marshall. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think that it was not expected to be one of the big movies, but then it, it had this great response to it. And I think, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that lands, as you said, in the culture. But the other, you know, big movies of the festival are not only If Beale Street Could Talk by Barry Jenkins, but Steve McQueen, who made 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. has made his most commercial film to date, uh, Widows, which stars Viola Davis among an ensemble of actors uh, playing a group of women whose husbands, um, you know, sort of are killed in a, in a heist and then they have to take on this mission. Our go date is in three days, the night of the debate. Now all of our work is worth nothing if we don't move this money in fast. The notebook says five It's a real thriller. It's a real kind of genre wow. movie, but embedded in Chicago, in the Black Lives Matter movement, in police brutality, and all kinds of social questions that Steve McQueen has always been interested in. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a very, very smart popcorn movie. Again, I think some of the critics of color thought the film had a lot more to say about society, and I think a lot of the white critics were sort of responding to it more at the level of like, well, this is a good genre movie. Good, good work, Steve, on getting us sort of a great thriller. What about for you? What are your personal favorites coming out of Toronto? Um, I think... I mean, one of my, the movies I really love, which you guys will all hear about, is Alfonso Cuarón's Roma, which is set in Mexico City. It's a, it's a kind of a memoir movie for him. It's about his own childhood in Mexico City. And it kind of actually gets into the questions of class and race within Mexico. Okay. Mm. Um, and because it's about his family, um, who are privileged, upper middle class family in, in, in Roma, this neighborhood in Mexico City, and the uh, housekeeper who kind of raised him, who he's made this film about. And it's a really incredible film. It's in black and white. It's very much a festival. It seemed like a festival film, um, very artful, but I also think it will really connect with people because it really is a coming-of-age story and, and a way of looking at Mexico that we haven't really seen in a big movie in our screens before. It sounds like a departure from his other movies, right? Like Gravity, which is like this big spectacle, right? This big Or movies. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Like, <laughs> right, exactly. Alfonso Cuaron makes like whatever he wants to make mm-hmm. and, and yet also is just a real, I mean, he's a real technical director and so I think it's going to be a big deal when it comes out and I loved it just because it's a, a really lovely way of telling a personal story through film. The other film that is the huge film that you must have heard about already is A Star is Born, which is the 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 trailer is so intense. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell me something, girl. Do you write songs or anything? I don't sing my own songs. Why? I just don't feel comfortable. Why wouldn't you feel comfortable? Almost every single person has told me they liked the way I sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. The trailer is really intense. The movie is really intense. I mean, some people were saying that this is going to end up being a bit like the La La Land versus Moonlight fight mm. between the very artful film and the very commercial film. A Star is Born would be like La La Land in that one is sort of a love oh, letter. Yeah. One is a love letter to you know to Hollywood and the entertainment industry itself, and the other is this very kind of innovative, imaginative film. Mm. But that said, A Star is Born is very good. And what actually might surprise you, which surprised me, is that Aside from Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, the rest of the film is a quite diverse cast. And so Bradley Cooper's best friend is played by uh, Dave Chappelle, who kind of emerges in the movie to give this very prophetic speech about fame and your relationship with fame, which feels which very... Which he knows very, Which he knows, knows right? and so it seems like he's just speaking to us <laughs> right. after a long time. Let me tell you something. You know, man, in the old days, I always knew, like, you were going to do something, that you'd be all right. It's the first time I'm worried about you. 
And then the other character, who's Lady Gaga's best friend through her whole journey to becoming this star uh, as she's born, is played by Hamilton star Anthony Ra- Ramos. Oh, um, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's got a pretty kind of... And then they're like central parts of the film and they appear, you know, in major sequences. So that even a movie like that, weirdly, felt more inclusive than it, than it could have or needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that maybe speaks to how some of these conversations are beginning to to influence a lot of cinema that's being made now. So I think both of those films were were great, sort of fun, and I think will be Best Picture candidates. A reminder, you called me the day that you got back to D.C. from Toronto to rave about a film that I haven't heard you mention yet. It's called The Hate You Give, and it's a film based on a YA novel that was a New York Times bestseller written by Angie Thomas. It's about a 16-year-old girl named Star whose friend Khalil is killed by a police officer and Star takes her anger to the streets in protest. It's about more than just Khalil. It's about black people, poor people, everybody at the bottom. I need to speak for him. Bilal, I've just watched the trailer to The Hate You Give, and it like brings tears to my eyes every time I see it. Tell us why you loved this film so much. Well, I have to first explain that I saw that trailer also before the festival and did not put it on my list because it did not <laughs> seem like it was. What? It did not seem like it was meant for me. Um, and it I was also, obviously meant for me. Yes, exactly. And it just looked a bit on the nose yeah, and a bit sort nose. of like Black Lives Matters 101, sort of the teen <laughs> edition. And that's okay, but I think that you know I didn't really. It wasn't really on my roster. And then I started reading reviews going back to festival consensus in through the midweek point. People were saying this is the surprising film of the festival Hmm. it's actually incredible really powerful people were raving about it and so I I was the last movie that I saw at the festival before I left and what really struck me about it was how well it works over its two hours it's it really you know it it brings you into this wonderful family life to her character and and her coming-of-age experience so she is code switch the experience personified <laughs> she is you know is 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 growing up in this black neighborhood goes every day to a very posh white school mm-hmm. and is navigating these things it's told in kind of diary you know her experiences and then she's exp- she has these experiences that that really politicize her and it, you know and it's again it's designed for teenagers so again maybe wasn't made for me but I'm always struck by how hard it is to make a movie work that well and how many don't work and this film works well from beginning to end and by the end you're really you know really shifted by it and I thought that was incredible and I think it's going to be a huge commercial success mm-hmm. because it has all the elements to both be politically you know embedded in what we're going through and I think understands how to relate to its audience and move its audience and so this uh, cinema that I saw it in you know most times critics don't say anything people were crying people were getting emotional in a press screening which is very rare to see huh. so I was I was impressed by the film for that ability I'm so glad see I knew it was going to be good just looking at the trailer uh <laughs> I should be a film critic. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I mean, he did say that the press screeners are super white, so I wonder what that means. That they were like, "This is great." Is it, did it read as one hundred and one? Did it read as the kind of thing that would that would play well with them because they're super white? No, and and but actually, in, in my case, going back to the diversity at the festival, there was actually it was it was a, a row of critics sitting behind me who were all black who were sitting together, mm-hmm. and I think they were there in in probably thinking that this movie needs to be skewered and and sort of like called out for its its basicness. Mm-hmm. And and I actually that didn't end up happening because I think everybody was sort of crying, you know, oh. in the course of the huh, film. Interesting. And, and I think that you know, it's, <laughs> it's, I think it also speaks to like how.
how marketing works, you know, because mm. trailers like this are cut to appeal to a wide range of people. And I, and I just hope it finds its audience and that doesn't sort of, you know, just gloss it over because it looks like a teeny bopper film. But, but let me just say, it's pretty amazing that we now have a high school coming of age story that's centered on a black young woman's experience. I, I don't remember ever seeing a film like that growing up where a high school movie was not about Drew Barrymore or Julia Stiles or, you know, or Can't Hardly Wait. Like, those are, those are my only high school movie memories. So I don't even, I was like kind of thinking about how this is like actually the first high school movie I've seen that shows how your racial consciousness and your awakenings happen at that age. That's mm-hmm. when you're formed. And I think the movie's really smart about showing how how that kind of happens in that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, I think it'll be like seen by high schools and by school groups and things, which is good. I mean, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll be curious what you think, Gene, when it comes out. So I'm please re- do sure write about I'm it. I'm really, really interested to I'm see I'm sure it. he'll hate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you are uh, obviously a uh, brown critic. Who else are you reading? Which other critics of color should you be? should we be reading as well? Well, you know, I, I found through your actually work and network as well, uh, Soraya McDonald's work. Oh. I used to write for the Washington Post. She's not living room. Yeah, and she writes for The Un- Undefeated mm-hmm, now, she's and great. she's an amazing film critic and cultural critic mm-hmm. in general. Um, I've always really enjoyed reading Wesley Morris, who's obviously been around for a long right. time, but he's at the Times, won the Pulitzer Prize. Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the first sort of, I think, you know, black queer critics to be at such a big sort of post um, and I think he often looked at films through this angle I remember producing an interview which maybe Shireen you might remember we did an ATC interview an All Things Considered interview about Fast and the Furious and why those movies were actually some of the first truly multicultural diverse yes. films and Wesley Morris wrote a big think piece about that which again he brought to bear this this way of seeing cinema um, so he's somebody and, and then the two critics I interviewed for this p- essay for Code Switch uh, Monica Castillo who wrote an amazing piece for the ta- New York Times about Coco and and ways that different cultures look at death and how important that is in understanding that film and and then Kate Young who's a wonderful feminist writer from Trinidad and Tobago mm-hmm. who I interviewed for this piece as well so it was really interesting to see you know how they're thinking about film and culture and so it's I, I think the wider range of people that are taking the time to write about film to reflect on why a film works and doesn't work interviewing people it makes a huge difference to the kind of conversation we have and the kind of cinema we have as a result of it. Bilal Qureshi, longtime film nerd who covers arts and culture for NPR, thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. So going back to The Hate You Give and my excitement around it, (laughs) uh, the woman who wrote the novel that the film is based on, Angie Thomas, she went to Belhaven University, which is in Jackson, Mississippi, and she calls Belhaven a mostly white, upper-class, private Christian school in conservative Mississippi. And code switching was a big theme at that time in her life, and it's a big theme in the novel and the film. And in an interview with The Griot, um, Angie Thomas said that during college, she felt like two different people in two different worlds, right? She'd leave her house playing Tupac. Um, and by the time she rolled onto campus at Bellhaven, she was playing the Jonas Brothers. <laughs> because, you know, that's what she thought she had to do to fit in. So um, I think that we should go out with something for Angie Thomas. And we should go out with not the Jonas Brothers, but Tupac's Changes. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, is life worth living? Should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse. I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Cops 
give a damn about a Negro Pull a trigger, kill a he's a hero Get it to the kids who the hell cares One less hungry mouth on the welfare you don't need to be pressed too hard to, to drop Pac in here. Just, you know. Tupac, you're always giving us life. Wait, so the hate you give, that comes from Tupac, right? Oh, right. It does. Yes. The hate you d- give does come from Tupac. It's uh, the hate you give little infants fucks everybody. It's actually his thug life tattoo that everybody knows. I feel like in the 90s, hip-hop artists always, like, reverse <laughs> Like, reverse engineered the acronym they needed to make the thing make sense, right? <laughs> Do you think that's what happened? <laughs> the hate you give little infants fucks everybody. Thug life. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. That is our show. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at npr.org. You can always send your burning questions about race with the subject line, Ask Codeswitch. Sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash codeswitch. And subscribe to the podcast on NPR One or wherever fine podcasts can be found. Maria Paz Gutierrez and Sammy Yenigan produced this episode. It was also edited by Sammy Yenigan. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch fam. Walter Ray Watson, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Adrian Florido, Leah Danella, Kat Chow, and Steve Drummond. Our intern is Andrea Henderson. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Peace, yo. Peace. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. And on the next How I Built This, how a group of spandex-wearing teenage superheroes called the Power Rangers helped turn Haim Saban into one of the richest men on Earth. You can find How I Built This wherever you listen to podcasts.